Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Coming to you live from the San Luis Valley in Colorado, where I will be at least for the next few months, if not through the whole winter, which is pretty crazy because I have not lived through a winter in I think seven or eight years. I moved to California that long ago. I am excited. I gotta say, I really like the seasons. I like the snow. I like being inside. I like fires. So I am so looking forward to cozying up in a house and getting some writing done. I love traveling uh, so much and love the van trips and would never give that up. But for me, it's all about the balance. I feel like after being in a house for probably like four or five months, I'll get sick of this and want to go traveling again. But um, for now, uh, it feels really nice to be able to take a bath and to actually get things done. It's really hard to work on the road, just getting podcasts up in general Uh, Not to mention other projects I want to do is basically impossible. So you will probably be getting podcasts from me more regularly on the sort of once a week schedule that I always want to have but never really seem to be able to do. Um, It's definitely a lot easier when I'm in a house. So have a lot of really exciting episodes coming up. Today's episode with my friend Kevin is so good. I just listened back to it and I love talking to Kevin. He is such a smart guy and we are on such, uh, we are on the same page about so much. Um, Kevin was on the show about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I guess, last summer. Uh, it's episode 26, 27, I believe. Uh, in this episode, he thinks it's 40 something, but to clarify, it's 20 something. Um, if you like this conversation, if you're interested in sort of like reinventing yourself, being influenced by, you know, fundamentalist religion and narcissism, etc. I highly recommend going back and listening to the first episode with Kevin first, just to get a bit more of an idea about who he is and what his background is. Um, but either way, this episode speaks for itself. Um, when we met up with Kevin this year, he lives in Montana. So we visit him during the van trips uh, and meeting up with him this year, he was talking a lot about narcissism and gurus and basically a lot of the same things that I've been thinking about. We talked a bit about those things on the last episode, but it was really fun to kind of circle back around and expand upon all of those thoughts and ideas. Um, I don't know, listening back to this conversation just made me feel like this is such an important conversation to have or to listen to. Um, I really wish more people would be having these conversations. I feel like uh, these patterns, the ways we 
lack discernment, follow people who uh, don't really know what they're talking about, but are super charismatic and charming and make us believe they do. This is so, so common and so rampant. I don't think I know anybody who hasn't experienced um, narcissistic abuse or been involved with a narcissist, whether that was having a boss that was like this, having a president that was like this, having a romantic relationship, a parent, etc. Um, it's so common. And uh, I hope that this conversation helps to helps us to all unpack this more and be a bit more honest and vulnerable about how common it is and not be as ashamed, I think, as we are have been so involved in these situations. Um, I would say the vast majority of my romantic relationships were, were with those who definitely exhibited qualities of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and yeah, I learned a lot from that, but I'm very, very happy to be on the other side. So I hope this resonates for, uh, a lot of you, if not all of you. Um, and before I get into all of that. I, I've been thinking so much about discernment recently and sort of waiting for the right episode to kind of talk about this. Um, it's come up for me at multiple different times in my life, uh, but it came up recently after reading Braiding Sweetgrass. This was the book that myself and my patrons picked to read in August for the book club, if you'd like to become uh, if you'd like to participate in the book club, we are doing it again this month in October. We're reading Belonging by Toko Pat Turner. Um, just go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. Um, and if you sign up for Patreon at the $10 per month level, you get access to the book club, amongst many other things. I'll talk about that more at the end. Um, but we're reading Braiding Sweetgrass. And uh, in our Zoom meeting that we held at the end of the book club to all discuss it, the question of discernment came up. Um, although I don't know if it was necessarily framed around discernment at first, but someone asked the question of like, okay, so we, let's say, let's say there wasn't sort of like larger structural, economic, political, um, things that were organizing the way that we interact with ecology. So let's just say it was really up to us to decide like when we, uh, burn down a forest because that's what it needs. Or when we cut down a tree to make a basket, how do we decide for ourselves if these things aren't regulated by structures and systems? How do we decide for ourselves whether or not this is something we should be doing? And um, woven through this book, which is about humans and our relationship to nature, our the the role we play in ecology it very much explained how indigenous cultures, Native American cultures, this was something that was very common, not just common, it was taught, it was innate. The discernment around how to interact with nature was common sense. Um, and it's something that we're lacking now. So the reason we don't know whether or not to cut down that tree. You know, there's all these stories of these people going out and, okay, we're going to make baskets and we're going to go talk to these different trees basically and intuitively assess whether or not that tree is ready to be cut down. If that tree is giving itself for the purpose of this basket. And of course, here we are, all these, you know, smart young people reading this book, but we're thinking like, what the fuck? I don't know if the tree is telling me if it should be cut down to make a basket or not. How do we tell? Um, and to me, this was all about discernment. This is that we are lacking in this crucial, crucial skill to make decisions from an intuitive, a self-trusting place. 
where we can decide, is it right for me to do this? Is this, is this a decision that works for me? Is this a decision that works for nature? Whatever we're talking about. And of course, this doesn't just apply to nature. This applies to relationships as well, which is where I think narcissism comes into play. And this is a very broad topic to understand, but to back it up a little bit, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, I had a a fellow named Mark Jones on the podcast. Um, He is amazing. He's an astrologer. He's a psychologist. He's a therapist. And um, before I had him on the podcast, I had an astrology reading with him several years back. And I was talking to him about all of these kind of relationships, all of these relationships that I'd had where I seem to be uh, interacting with a lot of narcissists or those who are exhibiting narcissistic qualities. I don't really love calling people narcissists necessarily, um, as I explain in more depth in this episode, which I'll just have to listen to so I don't repeat myself. Um, But I was sort of going through for him, like I have been constantly in the orbit of these types of people. And they've all been very charming. They've all been very charismatic. Um, From early childhood, because I was involved in this type of a personality, it became very difficult for me to trust myself because I was constantly gaslit. I was thinking, this person's crazy, but they're saying I'm the crazy one. And, um, you know, maybe they constructed a life that was uh, full of good deeds, and maybe they ran nonprofits and did all these good things for you know the world and for people and for the planet. But internally, in my personal relationship with them, they were terrible and, and emotionally abusive or physically abusive or who knows what. But when I would have confront them about this, they would say, "Well, what do you mean? Look at my life. How could you possibly say I'm not loving? Look at all the amazing, loving things I do in the world." Um, so this was my story over and over again, and I was constantly being mesmerized by them and attracted to them and fueling, I think, the behavior uh, due to and provoked by my own early childhood experience, my own, you know, psychosis, I guess, <laughs> my own neurosis. Um, anyway, so I'm talking to him about this, and then simultaneously I'm telling him about how I in my life, this was several years back, but how I wanted to buy land, how I wanted to create this community with other people. I didn't know necessarily what we were going to do there, but I wanted to create this world and I wanted to help people. And he said, well, the reason that you've had all of these experiences with all of these narcissist type people is because you needed to learn the skill of discernment. If you're going to be doing something like this, if you're going to take on a leadership role, if you're going to be partnering with other people, and then you're going to step in and help other people, you're going to quote unquote heal other people. Um, Other people are going to follow you, whether that's through your podcast, whether that's through this land and whatever programs you decide to develop around the land, you needed to learn really critically about how to discern things. So this isn't just, you know, discerning right from wrong for yourself. It's discerning who is best to partner with. Yes, romantically, but also professionally in friendships, etc. Um, and that was a really interesting perspective because on the one hand, I could see how I did not learn that skill initially. Uh, the way that I was brought up, the circumstances of my childhood, I did not learn any type of self-trust or discernment or intuition. Basically, I learned how not to trust myself. And this doesn't just happen on an individual basis. This happens on a cultural basis. Um, And I believe I mentioned this in the conversation with Kevin as well. But, you know, from an early age, let's say it's like, okay, it's time to go to bed. 
but I'm not tired. Well, go to bed anyway, or, you know, finish your food, but I'm full, but finished it anyway. There are all these things sort of baked into our Western normal culture that uh, remove us from any sort of self-trust or intuition. And that's really unfortunate because I do think it becomes a lot harder the farther you go away from that, I think the harder it is to get back to it. Uh, and you do really have to go through these sort of like deaths of the self and these deaths of your worldview or um, yeah, a death of your external world in order to redefine how you're going to interact in all of those spaces. And when we're not supported by a community, when we're not supported by mentors, when we don't have friends to sort of build us up and help us to trust ourselves or romantic relationships or parents or whatever, this process becomes very, very tricky and hard. Um, but when he said that, it made a ton of sense to me. And then moving forward, I realized how important it was going to be for me, yes, but hopefully for everyone, for all of us, to develop, uh, develop our own discernment. So figuring out, is it, is it right for me to cut down these trees? Is it right for me to leave this garbage at the campsite? Is it right for me to take a shit in the woods? <laughs> you know? Um, and sometimes the answer is going to be yes. And sometimes the answer is no, but we're, uh, I was going to say our species, but it's not our species. It's mostly Western cultures are so stupid for lack of a better word, um, that we come up with all of these like stopgap measures and solutions just in order to avoid the process of learning discernment. So as another bizarre example, um, I just went on a rafting trip with some friends down the Colorado river for a few days. It was the first time that I'd ever done like a multi-day rafting trip. And I spent a lot of time in the woods, uh, a ton of time in the woods, in fact. And, uh, I shit in the woods all the time and I dig a hole. I walk, first of all, I walk far away from wherever the campsite is. I dig a hole. I don't leave toilet paper at all. I just take a shit and I cover it with dirt and I walk away or I put, and I put rocks and whatever pine needles over it as well. Um, and having said that, I will stay at these campsites where people just like walk two feet off the campsite, don't dig a hole, take a shit, wipe their asses with toilet paper, and then leave the toilet paper at the campsite. And this to me is a, is a very good example of discernment, right? So interestingly on this rafting trip, as is, I think a part of raft culture, which is the first time I was really privy to raft culture, but they bring what's called like a groover. It's basically a shit box that you sit on to take a shit. And the whole thing is the pack it in, pack it out thing, right? So that includes taking a shit. And the person that we were with was a raft guide. One of the people we were with was a raft guide for his entire life. And he said, if people just shit in the woods here, this place would be disgusting. And I realize I think a lot of these campsites along the river that are only accessible by rafts or boats, or whatever, they're, they're quite populated throughout the summer. So people are staying with them all the time. Maybe it's slightly different than, you know, driving off on a forest service road, a logging road and finding some random spot where not a lot of people stay. Like these are designated campsites that get used frequently. So on the one hand, I sort of understand this perspective, but only through the eyes of a culture lacking in any sort of respect and discernment. Because yes, if we just said, okay, take a shit, but we didn't have any sort of responsibility or judgment around that action, people would just be taking shits like on the campsite, leaving the toilet paper there. And yes, it would be a mess. 
So in order to avoid that, what do we do? We take a box with us where everyone shits in it, and then we take the box away from nature, away from the earth, and we clean it and we wash it and just get rid of it. It's another thing like, you know, when like you were young, or maybe you still do this now, but you rake the leaves outside and then you put the leaves in plastic garbage bags. Like there are all these very, when you look at this in a critical way, all these very strange things that we do, which is very much as a result of viewing humanity and humans as outside of nature, that we're separate from nature. Because my question is, the whole pack it in, pack it out thing, are these lands, not just because they're maybe void of human waste, but also animal waste, like there are nutrients that are put back into the soil when you take a shit on the soil. And then there are specific bugs and critters that dung beetles, for example, that eat the shit that are also essential to the ecosystem. Um, but we don't put things, we think that as humans, what we should be doing is removing things. Oh, that thing is a problem. So let's take it away instead of adding something to the ecology of a place. Anyway, it just seems so bizarre to me that what, okay, what would solve the problem of people shitting all over the campsite? Well, if we taught them about one, maybe what the purpose of shit is for the soil, Maybe we said, okay, if you're going to shit here, you need to be responsible enough and, you know, just caring enough in general to walk far away from the campsite. You need to be responsible enough uh, to carry a little shovel, dig a hole, take a shit in the hole, and then cover it up and come back. But instead of that, we avoid that whole process. We avoid the nuance. We avoid the complexity. We avoid the intelligence and the information associated with making these decisions and instead we say well no can't do that let's bring a box to shit in and then we'll just carry that box with us the whole trip you know people travel down the grand canyon with a box of shit for 30 days which is fascinating to me um and again i understand it on some level like if we're really incapable of interacting with the world in any kind of a responsible way then fine like let's bring a shit bucket but to me it's frustrating that we don't care more to educate ourselves and to educate others about how humans interact with nature. And this totally applies to uh, interacting with those who exhibit narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic traits. I was listening to a podcast recently called Conspirituality, which is fascinating and sort of talks about the confluence between spirituality and conspiracy theories. And, um, they were talking about a couple different people. Uh, they talk about a lot of things, QAnon, et cetera. They're talking about a couple people who are in the sort of public eye right now um, in regard to COVID. And one of the people that they were talking about was Charles Eisenstein. And uh, I have had Charles on the podcast, as some of you I'm sure know or have listened to the conversation. Um, and Charles writes a lot. He's been writing a lot about COVID. He writes a lot in general a great body of work. And what I love about Charles and why I had him on the show was because of his ability to embrace and discuss things in a nuanced manner, to approach the world in uh, a dualistic way, to take multiple sides of something and hold them together as a whole. So one of the things that Charles does in, let's say, relation to COVID is that he asks questions about metaphors and symbolism. So he says, or asks his audience or whoever's reading his work, you know, what does it mean to have 
um, a virus in our society? What does it mean if our society is infected by a virus? And there were a lot of people that read that information and hear what he's saying as the virus is fake, there is no virus. To me, that's insane. To me, I what I hear him saying is there is a virus, but also what does it mean if we look at the virus from a metaphorical, symbolic, or archetypal way? He's just asking the question. <laughs> He's not saying the virus isn't real. To me, this is very clear. However, there's a great, great, great deal of people who take that information and say, oh, the virus is fake. I'm not going to wear a mask. This is all some sort of symbolic metaphor for the infection of society. To me, the fault is not with Charles. And I sort of took issue with this episode of conspirituality. Um, and I should probably be nicer to them because I actually think they have a lot of amazing things to say and I'd like to have them on the podcast one day. But the particular point that I don't think they address, that I don't think many people address, is that they put the fault in the deliverer of the information instead of the person receiving the information. Um, and I think that's a great fault. And I don't think it's a productive use of our time. And I actually think it can be an avoidance mechanism. So why is it? Yes. Okay. So Charles has this public platform. Um, he knows he has the fame that he has. Maybe he should be a little bit more careful in his writing to say like, I'm not saying the virus isn't real. You should wear a mask. I'm just trying to question the symbology or the metaphor behind it in order for us to be healthier in general, physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. To me, the issue is not with Charles. To me, the issue is with the person consuming the information. Another perfect example of this is, I'm sure a lot of you have read Sex at Dawn uh, by Chris Ryan and uh, Casilda Jetta. Uh, and this is a book that talks a lot about unconventional relationships and non-monogamy. But a lot of people read that book and will say, oh, cool, now I have an excuse to cheat on my partner, which is not at all what the book is about. But humans do this all the time. We can take good information and use it to our detriment. We can use it to excuse our bullshit. Like, I can't tell you how many times... I've heard friends or myself use really like intelligent, um, psychologically aware language just to um, avoid our own crap. You know, I have a ton of examples of that that I won't get into. But I last night we watched uh, the Source Family. This was a, I don't know, quote unquote cult in the seventies, um, and it was really fascinating to me. Um, because afterwards we were talking about like, okay, so what was up with this guy who was the leader of these people? You know, was he actually enlightened or somehow in touch with some sort of spiritual force or was he um, a con artist? And to me, the answer was neither one. To me, his personality type seemed very clear. This was someone who lived a really rough life, was involved with a lot of violence, probably had a lot of childhood trauma. He took psychedelics once, twice, a few times. Um, it was during the hippie movement and he thought he was a God. I mean, how many people do we know in our lives now that this happens to <laughs> you take psychedelics once and you think you are the chosen one. I know I had a version of this. I remember I haven't really done a ton of psychedelics, but I remember when I first learned astrology and was going through my own quote unquote spiritual awakening, I was like, Oh my God, I have all the answers. I'm really special. Thankfully, I allowed that to die pretty quickly, but I think a lot of people don't, and they continue to believe that they are God or the son of God or someone that other people should be following. And I would imagine that at multiple points in time over this man's life that he knew 
he was full of shit. But at this point, he has hundreds of people following him. They're all living in this house together. Like he's becoming well known across the world. And in instead of being honest about like, oh my God, shit, I was wrong. I would imagine that he just keeps perpetuating the lie and perpetuating the identity in, in order to avoid that truth. Not even in order to avoid that truth for his followers, but for himself, because that is a truly brave, vulnerable thing to do, to admit you're wrong, especially at that level. And fascinatingly, at the end of this man's life, he takes mushrooms and instructs a bunch of his followers to take mushrooms. And he says to all of them for the first time, I'm just a man. And they're like, no, 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 you're God. And he's like, no, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. Um, but to me, the quest, the interesting question isn't about him and who he was and what he believed in and whether or not he was fooling them or not fooling them. To me, the real interest and the question lies in the followers. It's my opinion that there are a lot more followers of narcissists, lovers of narcissists, than there are narcissists. And because I've been so intimately involved with these folks in so many different contexts, I know that if I don't play the game with them, if I don't give them the food they need to live and to survive and to thrive, it stops. That doesn't mean they'll change. My withdrawing, my food, my love, my nourishment, they don't change as a person. They just go out and try and find that from someone else. However, I'm no longer the fuel. So who would Trump be? Who would Jim Baker be, who's the uh, head of, or whatever he called himself, different versions of God, uh, to the Source family? Who would these people be if they weren't being followed? You know, I, I'm so sick of blaming and focusing on how dare these people do these things and act so irresponsibly and, you know, how dare they write in vague language and, um, you know, just how dare they act like this. That all may be true, but I've wasted so much time in my life trying to place blame and point fingers and focus on the perpetrator of that behavior than to look internally at why is this angering me so much and why am I participating in it? How am I wasting energy that could be used for my own healing and self-evolution and developing my own sense of discernment? How much of that energy is being wasted wishing and hoping and trying to change people who are narcissistic? This is a lot of energy, let me tell you. Um, so Kevin and I speak about this, but I just think it's a really interesting thing to think about in general, to just sort of like notice when we focus so heavily or we're so angered by or annoyed by someone's behavior, whether that is Trump, whether that is Charles Eisenstein, whether it's a partner we're with, a boss that we're with. Obviously, in the case of being employed by a narcissist, it's a little more difficult to leave because you're like making a living there. Um, but it is fascinating to think about, even in the case of a boss, like what is it that you are what is it that you could be learning here by being involved with or engaged with someone like this? I do feel like there is some level of, at least for me, there was always a level of like just sort of synchronistic patterning that I kept being pulled toward and engaged with people like this because I really needed to learn discernment for myself. Um, 
And that lesson may be different. Maybe someone is kind of narcissistic and they have a boss who is like uber narcissistic. And maybe the lesson they need to learn is that they don't want to be like their boss. And then they think critically and they're become more self-aware and really work on themselves. So I don't know what the lesson may be for each person individually, but I do think if you notice patterns like that, like you are the common denominator, doesn't mean you blame yourself or shame yourself, but it just means you act in a constructive way to reflect on why am I here? What am I supposed to be learning? And how can I work toward not repeating this pattern? And I do hope that this episode and some others that I've posted in the past and that I plan on uh, posting in the future will help us all feel a little less ashamed about um, being involved with or getting involved with people like this or following people like this. Because it is really embarrassing when you, you know proclaim to everyone like this is the most amazing person that I'm going to be with or that I'm going to follow or that I'm going to give all my money to and then to realize that that was wrong I so understand how challenging and embarrassing and shameful that process can be but if we can just normalize that a little bit more if we can normalize the fact of like we didn't learn discernment as part of any skill set in our Western culture. None of us did. So the fact that we expect any one of us to be um, adept at that skill is just false. And if we can just all work toward developing that self, that sense of self-trust and discernment for ourselves and helping other people do the same, then I don't know. I, I don't know if all the narcissists would just disappear, at least cease to be in power. But it's definitely, definitely more constructive than blaming the messenger, right? This is all about how we receive the information, how we choose to live our lives. And if we keep sidestepping that responsibility, if we keep coming up with these quote unquote solutions to avoid our own process in learning how to be a more aware, more intuitive, more self, most, more self-trusting person, then we're just wasting our time. And of course, this all comes down to trust in oneself. Obviously, we can't trust anyone or anything if we don't know how to trust ourselves. So if you're looking for a place to start in this process, it's self-trust. And that is super hard and is a very, in my opinion, sort of somatic bodily experience. I think it requires some isolation where we step away from people and things that influence us in order to decide who it is we actually want to be influenced by, who has our best interests at heart. But once we do that, I think, you know, I don't think it's a, uh, I'm still working on it. You know, I don't think that's like a thing you do and then you accomplish it and you're finished. I think it's a lifelong process. But at least in my experience, it's been quite amazing to be able to develop my own sense of self-trust, my own sense of discernment and intuition and see how the world around me changes all mirrors. Everyone I meet, I feel like is a mirror for me in ways that I can grow and evolve, um, or reevaluate. So that's all I'm going to say for now. This episode will certainly pick off, pick up where I left off a couple of brief housekeeping notes. I have just started a new WhatsApp group for my patrons. We are on group number three. There are four amazing women in this group. Like they all just did their introductions and I am blown away by how cool they are. And I cannot wait to see them all communicate with each other and with me. 
Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, if you become a patron, as I mentioned earlier, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, if you join at the $10 a month level, not only do you uh, help support this podcast, as I'm sure you've noticed, I don't have any sponsors and I really don't ever plan to have any. So this is my only job. This is my, the only thing that I do for work. And so your support is what helps me keep this going and helps me focus on it. Um, so if you have a few extra dollars to spare per month, um, you can just donate at whatever level you want on Patreon. Uh, but at the $10 level a month, you can get access to these exclusive WhatsApp group chats. I'm um, putting together, depending on how active the group becomes, maybe like 20 to 30 people per, per group. And the point is that you all just get to communicate with each other. So if you're feeling alone and isolated or that there's no one like you or that there aren't cool people out there and you're in relationships with crap people and have friendships with people that aren't aligned with you, joining this WhatsApp group and seeing how many people like you are out there is a really good thing. Um, definitely has influenced me a lot in my life as well to not settle and to recognize that there is a whole world of people like there, like me out there. So uh, I'm on to group three. There are four people in the group so far. Um, so lots of room for more. If you'd like to join, head over to Patreon. And then as a part of that same level, the $10 a month level, as I mentioned, we are doing book clubs, which I have decided I love. I was really afraid that this would be too much work and that I would resent offering this as a Patreon perk. Um, but I like it so much that now I don't ever want to read books by myself. So we're picking books that uh, from recommendations of past podcast guests. So I always ask my guests if they could recommend a book, what would it be? Um, the patrons get to vote on what book we get to read each month. I pick a theme. Uh, this month, as I mentioned, we are reading Belonging by Tokopa Turner, which was a recommendation from my friend Mackenzie Alexander, who was on this podcast maybe like episode around episode 50, episode 49, 51, something like that. Um, so if you would like to be part of the book club, there is still a ton of time. You can join at any point during October. Um, as long as you join in October, you get to participate. Uh, so patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you're confused about any of this or what I'm talking about, feel free to send me an email, just anyakotz at gmail.com. Uh, and then after we reread the book in October, we will meet via a live Zoom call to talk about it. I let all of you um, really uh, lead the conversation. So I follow your lead on what you would like to talk about in relation to the book. The first one was really fun. Um, and if you can't participate in the live Zoom call, I post a recording of it so everyone can watch it. And of course, you can just join the book club Um if you become a patron and you don't even have to participate in the Zoom call, or if you've happened to read this, read this book before, which I know some of you have, um, you can still participate in the Zoom call, even if you don't want to read the book again. So really anything goes. Uh, I just would love to do so much more of this with all of you to, to know that there are other people reading this book with me and especially within the WhatsApp groups to see you all talk about it and engage about it and send quotes and stuff is just really cool and inspiring. Um, so I think that's all. Oh, no, there is one more thing that I failed to mention last time <laughs> that I was about to forget this time. Uh, thanks to one of my uh, listeners and patrons, Justin, he created a, a Reddit thread, which I think means like I've made it in life. Um, the, re the subreddit is uh, Millennials Guide. So if you want to communicate with people who listen to the podcast but don't quite want to make the commitment of participating in a WhatsApp group or something like that, head on over to reddit uh, slash millennials guide and uh, 
you can comment on episodes, ask me questions. I will hop in there um, from time to time. So thank you so much, Justin, for creating that. I know there, someone posted something about like regional get-togethers, um, just other ways to get you all to meet each other. Uh, so certainly head over there if you would like to, um, yeah, meet other listeners who are just like you. Uh, yeah, if, uh, you don't want to do any of that, another great way to support the podcast is just to keep listening. Um, I appreciate that a great deal. It is so lovely to, even though you all are just like reflected by little numbers and stats on my podcast hosting service, just to know that you're all out there is super meaningful. Um, another really easy way to support the podcast is to hit subscribe in your podcast app. And then if you scroll down past all the episodes, there's a place to like hit stars. You can rate the podcast and leave a review. Even if the review is one word, those stars and reviews and subscriptions help the podcast show up more in search results and also makes the podcast look a lot more legitimate. So when I reach out to sort of more famous people and they want to know whether or not uh, doing my podcast would be worth their time, the first thing they're going to do is look at those ratings and reviews. So the more of you that can do that, the more it will help you in the long run. And uh, yeah, most of all, I just appreciate that you are on the other end of your headphones in your car, cooking a meal or whatever you're doing, listening to this. And um, you all are extremely meaningful for me in this podcast gives me immense, immense amounts of joy and inspiration and gratitude for the world. So thank you. Could not do it without you. Enjoy this episode. Um, I'm playing you in with a song called Under Your Thumb by Natty Reeves. And I think when you listen to it, you will understand why I'm playing it. I was trying to find songs that were more about like cults and communes and gurus, but all I really have is like songs about people complaining about their narcissistic relationships. Uh, so that'll have to do, but if anyone has any cool songs about, uh, you know, gurus and cults and all that, please send them my way. I just love hearing from you. Anything you want to send me, please feel free, whether it's through an Instagram message or an email, um, always open, not open, always extremely happy to hear from you. Uh, anyway, enjoy the song, enjoy this episode, and I will catch you on the other end. Can't stay silent for long For long 
All right. We are recording. Hello, Anya. Hi, Kevin. Been a while. It has been. Like a day. <laughs> yeah. Or from the last podcast. <laughs> Almost a year exactly, right? Almost a year exactly. Yeah, you are actually... I just recorded with one other person uh, who was the first person to be on the podcast twice, and you're, oh. the, you're number two. Wow. Yeah, I like that. It's an honor, yeah. I like that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, for those of you that did not listen to the first episode with Kevin, I don't remember what number it was, but it was about a year it's ago. It's like 40 something, Maybe. I think. <clears throat> Maybe. But it was a good one. So if you want some, some good background for this conversation... Yeah, with Mormonism, masturbation, you know, like, yeah, we, we like. go through just about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember the last one you were like, I don't really know how you did it, but you got me to like talk about my first experience masturbating within five minutes. Yeah, I think it was eight, but yeah, and I was, you know, I, people listening, you don't understand her eye contact. It's just like you're sitting in a confessional. It's just, you know, it's just so like, like a nice confessional. A very, ni- a yeah. very, yeah, yeah. You set the environment to makes it okay. Right, you know, right. it's the confessional we always wanted. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in any of that, definitely pause, go back and then continue. <laughs> um, and I'm really excited to talk to you today because it just so happens that I've been sort of hyper-focused on, um, I would say it's such a, it's such a hard thing to like talk about, uh, without speaking very broadly, I guess, which we'll probably get into, but I guess, uh, you know, generally speaking, narcissism and how that plays out in terms of people becoming leaders of large movements. Um, I think I've been thinking about this for a while in terms of my own personal life and my own personal experience with it. And then, you know, definitely thanks to Trump, but I think also thanks to, you know, this kind of guru shit that's always been around, but I feel like is even more prominent now. Like everyone's a fucking shaman. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm seeing it play out collectively in a way that's been really fascinating to me. Um, and you'd mentioned that you were thinking about these ideas a lot and potentially working on a book to sort of sort through some of this. Yeah. It's definitely turning into a book, but it's been, it's been years of notes, observations, collecting, different frameworks for explaining this. And so before we get into that, I need to, and I think it would be helpful for everybody to have like a fundamental understanding of what narcissism is to you. And then we'll get into like why that, because we could be talking totally past each other. So like the abstraction that you have or your imprint from narcissism could be totally different from others. Some people don't see Trump as a narcissist, but they see him as a savior. Well, what is it to you? I'm curious. Narcissism. Well, that that gets into a whole gamut. So right. first, let me hear what you. <laughs> okay. I'll Fine, bring it Kevin. back. Well, there's there's a reason because then <laughs> okay, it would okay. help me. Yeah. Uh, like linguistically bridge my understanding right. of narcissism. Right. Yes. You're good at this podcasting thing. Um, <laughs> I guess you know, broadly speaking, psychologically, I feel like it's people. Well, first of all, I guess I don't necessarily know if I believe in like narcissists so much as like there's a narcissistic process that we're all capable of that we maybe are running at different levels than other people, maybe at different times in our life. So it's like something that I feel like we're all capable of. And to me, it comes out of this core wounding, um, that's all about really, uh, gaining all sense of self-worth sense, uh, your sense of self-identity, um, from other people. And then I think that's just one expression of how to do that. Right. So I think there's like this dynamic of narcissistic person, people with narcissistic personalities 
and people with like fawning personalities and they're doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same core wounding. Like they're getting their self-worth and approval by being loved and accepted and seen as good often from these people that are expressing that same sort of need just through a different filter, if that makes any sense. So you're framing it as a as a void that a person has that fills with external validation. I think so. I think that's where it begins. And then of course, you know, we can see that as just like, okay, you're in a relationship with someone who's doing that and who you're doing that with. Um, and I think that can be taken to different extremes depending Mm -hmm. on who this person is, what their history is. Um, I guess for me, I do see it as because I see most things as stemming from some sort of like, child early childhood trauma or just like what's happened in that person's life that that's what they feel they need to do and that becomes there's some I don't know there's something that's very disconnected in a way that's almost not as disconnected from like the fawning type which is maybe inflicting um blame on themselves shame on themselves whereas the narcissist I feel like it's projecting everything outward to everyone that's a good way to frame it so okay so I think I have a pretty good understanding of yours comes from like an egoic projection or a or or a um a need for validation from external people and such yeah yeah so have you heard of the dark triad I have not okay so this is so yeah psychologists laid out um what's called the dark triad personality disorder Mm. or or personality spectrum Mm -hmm. and these there's mock of Alienism, mm-hmm. and then there's narcissism, and then there's psychopo- psychopathy. And people that display dark triad personalities fall within these three categories. So Trump would be much more narcissistic plus Machiavellianism, right? So he he like embodies that end of the spectrum. I don't think he embodies the psychopathy right. uh, uh, part of it. That would be like American Psycho with Christian Bale. He emphasized the core bits of all those the dark triad personality where he was charismatic, you mm-hmm. know, he was narcissistic, everything everything external validated who he was through his you, framing of the world. The Machiavellian, can you elaborate on that one a little bit? It's the one I don't understand the best, but yeah. it's the one that makes us the, the that are innate when somebody uses a deep, powerful voice when they they're commanding in their presence. Mm-hmm. It has this Machiavellian pull to it, right. and you you just want. I don't know. It doesn't matter what the person is saying. I just want to follow that person because they are they're they're all confident in their in their uh, projection. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've always kind of like associated that quality with narcissism, but I can also see that not all narcissists have that capability. No, yeah. Like I don't think so. Tony Robbins, I think is really big on the Machiavellian, right? right? And this gets into, I think that these are low resolution, uh, understandings or frameworks for this. And this is where I've tried to find, because I got so caught up in the, the classical narcissists or the classical framers mm. that distort the way that we interact in in culture. And so you had people like Freud, right? Freud changed so many people's way of interacting with themselves and then interacting with the people around them. And then you had his nephew Bernays come and bastardize much of what Freud did and put it into consumer capitalism. And he would say, well, the culture says it's not socially acceptable for wet women to be smoking. Right. So he had a campaign, he got paid and he did this, you know, big, parade and at the end he had these debutantes lift up their skirts and pull out the torches of freedom and they lit up and then from then on it was socially acceptable for women to be smoking in public right and so he saw and this is what 
let's get uh, back into fun foundations, which yeah. is um, when I say the word abstraction, what comes to mind? Um, in, in terms of someone's personality or just in general? Well, how about I'll phrase it like this. This is how yeah. I see it. Yeah. And this is like where I start with this is we don't live in the external world. We live in an internal representation right. of the external world. Right. And so like having a daughter, it's been very like watching her perceive what's in the world and then help me ling- linguistically bridge an external object into her internal representation, right. which is an abstraction, right. Right? right? So we navigate the world through abstractions. We yeah. do not navigate the world through reality. Right. And when we have that abstraction, it can be hijacked. It can be programmed. It can be manipulated by the dark right. triad personalities that cause us to get into cults, that cause us to get into tribalism, that cause us to get into, you know, Seventh Day Advent or, you know, whatever. Like Heaven's Gate is what I meant, you right, know, and right. it's like we're sacrificing ourselves to Hale Bop. Right. Like this is, this is, there's a type of person that I am now calling, this is working, but it's abstractor. Mm. And the abstractor takes the culturally accepted. Uh, abstractions of the world or scripts of the world and they rewrite it to their framework and then people adopt that and usually it's through the Machiavellian not necessarily the narcissist unless you're abused yourself or you're, right. you have that that need for a validation through this negative reinforced channel right. but the Machiavellians will bring you in they like they they subvert your defenses or, or, you know, your understanding of the world. They, they easily bypass that and give you their understanding of the world. Right. And then that becomes a feedback loop that, you know, the more that people believe it, then the more it amplifies the Machiavellian. And then, it, you know, it's, it's a reinforcing loop until you have someone like Trump in office. Right. And I'm assuming the reason or one of the reasons that you got interested in this, but I'd like to hear you talk about it more was because you were raised in Mormonism and and broke free from that. I remember we talked about this the last time you were on the show where it was like, and and this can happen. I feel like if you're raised in fundamentalist religion, if you have some sort of crazy, emotionally abusive, psychologically abusive parent, in order to break free from that, it's literally a process of like you, you coined it and I use this all the time. You have to put yourself in an open source state, Yeah. right? Like you have to literally erase all of your programming and reprogram yourself based on really how you see and interpret and process and understand the entire world. Yeah. Um, it goes that deep. So take that further. We don't open sources. Yeah. You're in an open source state, but then your sense of self needs to understand the processing. And this is where, when I first saw a rock, a rock was just a rock that I perceived in the world. But when it became an abstraction, that rock became a projectile. I could simulate throwing it. A stick is a stick until a stick is an abstraction in the imagination. And that, that stick then is an extension of your arm that could reach the scarce apples in the tree. Right. Or like pick, or like, you know, crystals, right? Like that's what I think people, it's like either it's a rock or it's got this energetic quality to it that's going to heal your, you know. And and so say you had this, this firm belief that crystal has this manifestation of energy that helps you feel better in the world. Right. 
if you live in a bit of abstraction and you've got it to the point where that crystal is a representation of a good thing, there's yeah. no difference than that, than reading a prayer or saying a prayer over and over, or reading your favorite poem over and over. The, the crystal does that same thing if your abstraction has allowed you to believe that that is a positive force in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's, I mean, this is such an interesting topic to think about because I also, you know, humans in general, the, the degree to which, or the desire we have to like find meaning in the world or to admire people or to, you know, follow in someone's lead or see someone as an example. Like this is such a common in, it seems human trait. Um, and yet I guess to me, it's like, is that trait in and of itself problematic or is it a result of us not having our own self sense of intuition, our own sense of self trust that we can distinguish between who, who's for real, what's for real, what, what do I actually personally feel about this instead of just kind of assuming this person says X, Y, Z. So therefore I'm going to believe it. Yeah. I think it gets in our current culture, it's hijacked by these, these abstractors. So in Mormonism, they don't tell you that you have a subconscious that reflects linguistically. So you have your internal monologue that goes, right? You can conjure it, you can lead it, or it can just run amok, yeah. right? But when you externalize that to the Holy Ghost or proddings from Lucifer or, you know, th- th- this is what I was told. I didn't know that I had an internal monologue right. that, was a, that was a result of everything I ever heard and thought, uh, just, you know, in the noise that becomes my subconscious, uh, that when it's hijacked and brought into the Holy ghost or into, uh, you know, the devil, the Bible's the only framework. The book of Mormon's the only framework. Joseph Smith's, uh, understanding of what this internal process is, is my only understanding of it. So how do you take hold of that? How do you sit back and get in that open source state and go, Oh, that's my own voice. Holy shit. All right. And that's, that's where I, I had to get all the way back to a rock is a rock until a rock is a projectile. A stick is a stick until a stick is an extension of your arm. Right. And you can do that to everything that you've ever perceived in the world, including your ideas of race, sex, gender, you know, God. All of these things are abstractions. And so who is the abstractor that gave you that? And is it beneficial or yeah. is it harmful in your life? Because right. this is where it really took a change. I, I, was, I was getting depressed. I was getting so weighed down finding all of these people that have hijacked our culture and the, the people who are navigating in their abstractions are actually navigating in a dark triad personalities abstraction of the world. And that's, that's literally like a prison to me knowing where, what I had been, you know, uh, in. And I, I saw that, no, 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 we have good abstractors in the world. And so I write about Stan Lee Stan Lee, he abstracted his reality to the point where these mythical godlike heroes embody everything that we would want out of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I see little kids running around in their Iron Man suit. They, are, they fully embody this, more so than they, they believe in Jesus. They believe in Stan Lee's abstractions of what it is to be a hero. And we have 
people in Congress. We have people all over the world. When they think of great power, they think of great responsibility because that's what we heard from Stan Lee, right? These are beautiful abstractions of the world. So they're beneficial for the world, which I would say that that's, this is where I, I don't have the language right, but having positive abstractors versus negative abstractors. There needs to be a better mimetic form for that. But I think we can understand that there is these good people in the world that give us a better understanding of the world. And I think Buddha did this. I think Christ did this. Right. But then it gets bastardized by the people who, oh, that's a really all I have to do is like, all of the doors that Christianity opened in early childhood, Joseph Smith can go in and be like, ah, the doors are only opened. Yeah, but the doors that I went through, they're the right ones. So come follow me, right? And then you're led through the doors that Christianity has had open in our culture for a couple thousand years, right? So that's where it gets like, uh, yeah. What are you hearing me say? That's a better way of... Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess... (laughs) I struggle with, you know, and maybe the, the, the premise of this in and of itself is problematic, but I think about these concepts so frequently. And of course, like I'm coming from a perspective of having been, I feel harmed by having myself, my mind be hijacked, you know, following the lead of these sort of abstractors, as you call them. Um, you know, I think I wasn't in a cult and I wasn't raised in, fundamentalist religion, but certainly I think just culture in and of itself, right? Like I've talked about this before, you know, we, we grow up and kids are like, I'm not hungry. Well, eat anyway. Like I'm not tired. Go to bed anyway. Uh Right. We're trained from such an early age to not trust ourselves. Um, and I think this happens on, you know, a large spectrum depending on where the source of the misinformation came from, where the source of the lack of self-trust came from. Um, I'm curious though, like historically, you know, I think we have a, uh, I do feel like we're talking about these things more now, but they, I don't think those are, that's because they're new. I don't think like Trump is a new phenomenon necessarily, right? This has been going on for ever. But he's an, he is, uh, a personification of the worst amplification of the dark triad personality. Yeah. As in, we've put him on TV for eight plus years. Right. And gave him the ability to like, he is the best businessman on earth. Right. I mean, it was a joke from the producers to grab him because it's like, it's not believable. You know, he's got how many bankruptcies? Like how he's, he's a character. Right. But we validated him so much and we pumped him up so much. And then he becomes the leader of the free world. Like how, how in his frame of reality, not validated that it is the best way of living. Right. We have we are the mirror that we project back to him as a culture validates that he is where he's supposed to be. Right. This is why it's like people talk about it being he's a symptom. He you know, the the issue is systemic. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about that mirror, because I think, you know, having been personally involved with people who are definitely, in my opinion, running a lot of like narcissistic processes, um, to me, it's, I, I feel like it's nearly impossible, if not totally impossible, to change these people or get them to understand what's going on or get them to see the light or mm-hmm. to heal, or, which is not to say that it's not possible. But I guess in my life, in my life, it felt like my effort being pushed in that direction is a colossal waste of time. Yeah. And I had to sort of start ask myself, well, you know, 
if you keep coming into these people's orbits and you're playing whatever this game is with them, you're dancing with them and whatever this dance is, then what's your, what's your role in this in the first place? You know, yeah. would they be able to, and, and would, like, would they be able to carry out what they're carrying out if I wasn't like feeding them the food that they were asking for? They wouldn't. Right. Well, I mean, they, they wouldn't change. They would just become starved from the external validation that is right. amplifying this dark triad personality. But yeah, that's totally on us. And this is what my hope is, is to find the right way of leading people into that open source state, seeing where they've been abstracted yeah. and if that's positive or negative. But but empowering people to know that they can change that. Like that is fundamental to how the, the nervous system interacts with abstractions in reality that we create in a linguistic form. Right. And so what does that look like to you? What does it look like or feel like? What's What are the tools that someone would need to employ in order to know, like, is this person for real? Is what I believe beneficial, harmful? Like, what is that? Is that an individual process for every person? I'm curious what you feel like that looks like. Yeah, it comes across. We have to have like a good gauge or barometer when people are relaying information. So uh, when somebody comes across as very, very confident in their, um, what would you say, confident in their conclusion, mm -hmm. they're usually selling you something. Right. If somebody comes in with a skeptical conclusion, like, I, I'm pretty sure this is what it is, but Google that real quick, you know? Yeah. Like, Jamie, bring that up. <laughs> Good or example. Or just like, uh, like, I've been thinking about this. Yeah, Here's been, an idea. It, that, yeah. So when you hear it that way, our... our our ability to be aware of what's coming through the doors of our abstractions mm -hmm. is they're, they're more open because it's not an absolute statement. When somebody is super confident and they come across like that, it is the easiest way for us because back in the day when it was so dangerous or when we were more tribal or whatever, you go with the guy who sounds like he knows what he's doing, right? right. It's just like this innate thing that we have that we follow the one with the deepest baritone voice or the sharpest yeah. fangs or, yeah. you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what he's saying. Is he getting, is he giving me that feeling like I'm going to be safe? Right. So that's right. that, that I discount that probably the quickest in my life now is when somebody comes across as confident in their conclusions, confident in the information in this, the way that they're passing it as in, it's like being forced. Like I, I they're, 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 they have to have me believe them. Right. Scientists, uh, Joe Rogan is a good example of this, of, of skeptical conclusions. Mm. It's like he, he frames the information in such a way that it's very easy for us to accept and, and you usually don't, I mean, when people offer that information, it's like, yeah, I'll Google that later, but let's further the conversation. And then in the macro of the entire conversation, much more information was passed, much more information was understood mm -hmm. than when somebody just confidently barrels with it. It's like, well, that's what he said. You know, that's that one quote that I have to remember, whatever it was, right? right. So asking yourself questions around how people are conveying information versus not do you feel like a part of this too and this is where i think it's very hard to talk about this in sort of an intellectual logical way but just intuition right like what does that look like or feel like because i also think there are people that you know i often wonder like have being someone who 
I feel like was my mind was very much framed by this abstraction or these types of abstractions. Like, do I have better discernment than someone who wasn't shaped in that way or worse discernment? Right. Because it really does get it to me. It gets back to like feeling something in your body. And then even when you feel something in your body, being able to distinguish between, am I just experienced some sort of like delayed traumatic reaction based on my past experiences and I'm applying it to this, right? It's a very fucking complicated process. And I'm, I, I assume this happens to you too, but that, that question of, is this person fooling me? Am I fooling myself? Yeah. Am I totally lying? Is this for real? It feels all consuming yeah a lot of the time it very much is and and i think we might come at it differently mm. uh and this is where i my ability to truly change i know needs to come from that emotional intuition state right but i feel that my body's doing the work and giving me my subconscious all the signals that i need that as i sit in my awareness up in the highest part of my brain away from all those icky emotions right. it bubbles up with these questions or these observations right. now that's not the deepest psychological dredging that i need to do to truly change the abstractions that i don't have this unresolved emotional issues right. but most people when they hear like oh it's this feeling that i have the burning in the bosom as christianity would call those things we're detached from it because we have no framework to understand it right. it comes up and then it just it, it it's all pervasive and you're going to have your insecurities overlaid with your confidence overlaid with your skepticism and it's like which one of those tracks do you try to like give your limited awareness right because right. it's you've heard of like lantern versus laser consciousness mm-hmm. like our ability like when you just go into that dreamlike state you're much more in that lantern think of like a cave you go through a lantern versus you go through like a flashlight right, right? it's projected right, 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 right. right? and so when you're in that lantern, like that's the best form to sit in while emotions come up. You don't want to let your awareness get into that. The whys, the what's, the who's, you know, all those linguistic scaffolds that will grab your attention and then lead you away from those feelings because they're safe. They're comfortable. They've been imprinted from us since we were a kid, right? They're, they're very easy for us to access and then get away from the emotion itself. Yeah, and I think it's it's challenging because, at least in my experience, when I started to, like, even if we just talk about living in an unconventional way, right? So, okay, I've decided I'm getting a divorce. I'm not living this life anymore. I don't want to have a nine-to-five job. I'm going to live in a van. I'm going to travel around, you know, unconventional relationships, friendships, whatever, you know, living in a sort of communal way, right? These are all unconventional types of choices, more I would say common now than before, but still for the vast majority of the world, those things are sort of foreign. And so you let you grow up in a context in which you're being told what's right, the choices you're going to make, the life path you're going to have. And let's say you get to the point where it's like you have the bravery and the courage and the insight and the self-trust to be like, you know what, I want to make a different choice. Mm -hmm. And I remember this so vividly thinking like, oh, amazing. Like, I'm going to make a different choice. I can't wait to go tell all my friends and everyone in my (laughs) life about all this stuff. And they're going to be so supportive, right? And I realized very quickly that like I was basically going to the places for support that I feel like in many ways were pushing me down into that black hole to begin with. Yeah. So it's like you go, 
I talk about kind of like I, there was a death of self, obviously, in this process, the open source state. You have to like take everything away and go back to square one to figure out where you're going to go next. Um, and that's a devastating process for sure. But I think that more devastating or more confusing is that once you change, you know, once you die, once you have a new way of looking at the world, everything around you then changes as well. You see everything differently. Yeah. And it's like you have to, you do this big thing where you think like, wow, good for me. I'm going to live differently. And then you have all these other hurdles in front of you, which is like the people in your life want to keep you in the place that you are. The culture wants to keep you in the place that you are. I mean, basically, I think a big reason we're so far into this mess is because Western culture in and of itself from day one that we're born is like creating these cogs and yeah. right <laughs> yeah it absolutely is they they create uh think of it like a scaffolding that is erected up around us and then the more we grow in our personality it it literally erects the structure and that structure is a community that all has to reinforce it right when you break away from that structure that is not good for the whole right uh, terrence always says that culture is not your friend and I, that, that took me a long time to understand, but it's not your friend in the way of if you want to be a, if you want to live a life that is not under other people's abstractions, but a genuine perception of how you're navigating the world through your own abstractions, then there's methods to implement to be able to do this. We don't have them yet. There was no, there was literally no user manual for all of us. Right. And we're just, I mean, uh, you know, I'm called an elder millennial, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, oh shit, there's actually a way of reprogramming my perception of reality that affords me an entire different experience of reality. Same thing, like when, I mean, this is what any cult offers. This is what any political party offers, right? They're literally trying to change their world in the their framework of how the world needs to be. Right. And do you feel like we get pulled into this because there's something like do we get pulled into these sorts of cults and groups and cultural scaffolding structures um because it's easier like is there or, or just because we never learned how to have any sort of discernment or self-trust? Yeah, I you think... You know, like, is it a cop-out? Like, are we... Why is it so easy to do? Why isn't there some sort of internal mechanism that tells more people more often, hey, like, check yourself and look into this more? They, <laughs> they do do that, but they do it in get on your knees and pray five times a day. That's mm. how they, they perpetuate this, uh, this structure that, that transcends the lifespan of a human. Right. And it's currently transcended the lifetime of generation upon generation upon generation. Like, look at how long Christianity has survived by replicating itself in nervous systems through lineages. Right. Right? That's very powerful. Jung said, this is paraphrased, but he said... Um, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Right. And when you put yourself in that framework that you're just this, 
conglomeration of ideas, right? Just like a petri dish of everything that you have ever heard and then how those neurons are close to those other neurons and then they fire. If you distance yourself from that, then you get this other awareness that that's a process that just happens. It's the same process that this, this, it culturally sounds weird, but I think that everybody has these examples. Uh, mine is if I have a knife on my desk, somewhere in my subroutine, there's this possibility that that knife is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm doing something else and that danger is ever present, it bubbles up through my nervous system in other ways where it's just like, what if I cut myself on that? Or what if I do this? Another example is if you're next to a cliff, people have that, what if I jump right now? Yeah. Or as they're driving down the road, what if like I just jerk the, the wheel to the, yeah. right? Yeah. And like, <laughs> people don't want to like make that audible. But right. when you have the understanding that that's just a part of your brain that is running the subroutine that then, you know, if you direct it, it's like, well, I'm not going to do that. It quiets very quickly. Right. Yeah. But that's what that part of the brain is literally structured to do is to have those type of thoughts. Right. You just let it have it. I mean, I literally don't feel any danger when I have this little prodding that I'm going to jump off the railing. Like that doesn't affect me. Yeah. But other people that give that more amplitude, they are literally taking that neuronal structure and hypermyelinating it. That, that, that little distant shadow of a thought becomes this ever present thing that they have to go jump off, right? right? They have to jump off that, that, but that didn't need to get to that point. Right. So we're like choosing internally what to focus on. Right. Is that what you're saying? Hopefully we were value. given more power to do the choosing, right. but everybody has to find that ability to distance themselves from all of the thoughts as just thoughts instead of, I mean, yes, they're a part of you, but they're not, they're not the commanding force of you. Yeah. You know, that is not the rudder of the boat, that thought that's going to make you jump off that cliff. Yeah. That is just a part of your brain's ability to give a probability of all the different destinations you're headed as a person in reality that you could jump off that or somebody jumps off that. You just don't humor it. Yeah. You know, you step away from it. So going back to this whole concept of like, good and bad abstractors. Is there something about all of this that's sort of like inherently moralistic in a way, right? Like who's the, who gets to decide what's a good thing to follow, who a yeah. respectable person is to yeah. listen to, right? Is that seems like inherently subjective, which might yeah. get us into the mess that we're getting into. Because obviously the people that are out there supporting Trump, they're not like, oh yeah, I know he's an idiot. I know he's not, yeah. you know, voting in my best interest. I know he's not a Christian. Like none of those things are relevant, right? Yeah. They're just deciding for themselves that he's okay based yeah. on their own critique. Yeah. Um, so... And it's deeper than the people that just say, he hates the same people I hate, so I'm going to vote for him. It's deeper than that. He's... We we have a, another structure in the brain that believes in godlike entities. Right, like that's our ability to believe in something bigger than ourselves. Right, Trump represents something bigger than themselves, and people believe it and they live within it. And and what about that quality? Right, I mean, we had a kind of debate about this the other night around, you know, it's a to me the 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 uh, proclivity humans have toward believing in something greater is not the issue. 
the issue is what we choose to do with that belief, yeah. right? Yeah. So, okay, I believe in something greater. I think, you know, astrology has some validity in it, and it helps me self-reflect or understand myself in an archetypal mytho- mythological way. So fine. But someone can yeah. take that a lot further, right? And yeah. be like, well, I'm this, you know, the only reason I'm the way that I am is because like the planets are informing me and I get to be an <laughs> asshole because I'm an Aries or whatever the, yeah. the crap. Or, you know, taking it so far as like, astrologers in and of themselves of which I've experienced a lot, you know, they're basically claiming that they're interpreting God on something supernatural. And then to the person who they're giving a reading to, let's say the, let's say the person giving the reading is totally one of these sort of more negative abstractors. Mm-hmm. And the person receiving that reading is just totally, you know, their own programming is to believe this. Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard for me because it's hard for me to defend, I think, meaning and belief within a culture and all this history of people wildly misusing and abusing yeah. that. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, it's it's really bad, I would say, right now. The only thing that I have historically would be when you know, the Greek and the Romans, you know, they split from monotheistic to polytheistic, like what we've happened, you know, God is dead in our culture. Well, what, what happened to the union archetypes that, that gave us a framework to understand ourselves better in our current culture? Yes, that information's there, but how is it implemented? It's been so bastardized through everything. There, there is, when, when I hear you talk about astrology like that, I think that when when somebody's giving a reading, how I understand it is they're just they're literally just passing their abstractions to someone. And if somebody has learned to hear how somebody has abstracted the world, that allows them to see how that person navigates the world. Yeah. It's like literally putting somebody inside their their representation of the external world. Right. And it's very good when you have a positive abstractor that can get in there and go, oh, that door's not supposed to be open. That's going to lead to a whole lot of bullshit. Right. No, you need to close that one. You need to close that one. And hopefully having somebody there that helps you close those doors empowers you that, oh, I can do that too. Oh, that's how I do that. Oh, I can just close that. This is what therapy does. Right. You know, this is what, you know, the, I think that tarot cards, you know, it's the same thing. We're all just using language, right? But it's what people, how, how people have attached meaning and belief to those abstractions. Right. Yeah, I had a close friend of mine, Jenny, who I did this astrology apprenticeship, and I have several friends within that world who I really, who are, who did become astrologers, unlike me. I just did it for fun, kind of. Um, But if you don't, and a lot of them are actually therapists as well, and it's like, if you don't have an, if you as the practitioner of anything, in my opinion, therapy, astrology, Reiki, tarot card reading, preaching, I don't care what you're doing, if you're not consciously aware of your own filter, right, mm-hmm. your own abstraction, how you are taking basically words or ideas and then interpreting them through your own prism, yeah. if you don't have that understanding, and then especially if the person who's coming to you also doesn't have that understanding, yeah. that is a fucking recipe for disaster. Absolutely. Or if they're 
they're waiting for that vulnerable person to show up. They're like, ooh, this is easy. Oh, I'm going to get so deep in this person's mind and open and close all the right doors that they keep paying me every single... No, it's three times a week now you need to be coming in here because you've got some bad places in that mind open. Right. You know, there's there's bad, as bad as you hear about the tarot readers, to the astrologists, to the yogis, to the reikis, yeah. you know, in every single, from doctors to therapists, there there is manifestations of the dark triad that finds the vulnerable people and then fucks their, fucks their existence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of why we often fail to see how other people are filtering or that they are is a result of us not having that understanding within ourselves. I think we don't have ideas and I, and it's like, it sucks because I understand like the pain that you had to sort of go through to recognize that the entire way that you saw the world, that everybody you trusted who told you that X, Y, and Z was true. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of grief in that. And, and, um, just a total feeling of isolation and but, but isn't that kind of on a spectrum like i wouldn't give up that pain of course because not. of the power that yeah. came with it the power to uh, yeah. actually stay above the thoughts i need to use that power to deepen the emotions the felt yeah. of the emotions but at least to stay above it it took that pain of course. it took that breaking down to actually give that and i yeah. and i don't think people that haven't subjected themselves to that breakdown can't come out the other side. They, yeah. they, I don't know if it's available. I hope that it's available like through little bits of pulling the bandaid off, uh, slowly. But for me, I wouldn't give that pain up that I felt. Yeah, no. And I certainly wouldn't either, but I, I think because as we've been talking about, we live in this culture and world where, you know, not only are we not educated about that process, but there are all these different roadblocks up mm-hmm. to prevent us from getting there. And then once we're there, you know, there's not really always someone there to support us or lead yeah. the way. I mean, I very much felt like that. And it's like, you know, I only had, let's say, X amount of trauma to where I feel like I had enough self-awareness, enough confidence, enough support, even though it wasn't nearly enough, in my opinion, like what yeah. we all deserve. There was enough of it there where I could get through that. But for someone that has had has has had way more trauma than I do, who has addiction issues, like serious mental health problems, it it's like what tools do they have, you yeah. know, to go through that? And I think I would imagine the vast majority of the people that have not gone through this process themselves and are not aware that other people are traumatized just working out their own patterning through the world, through their relationships, through other people, mm-hmm. um, that those are the people that need the most support, yeah, you know? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think for them, it, it gets back into this cliche, holding space for them. Right. So when they are, when they're, when they feel that it's, uh, vulnerability is able to be accessed in a, 
in an open form, then they can see that it's okay to let somebody open these doors. Because most of the time people are just so closed off that they won't let anybody. And then they're just trapped in their abstractions that other people gave them. And they're just trying to, it's like being locked in your own internal prison. They're just locked off from it. And they're, they're, they're resolute in that pain. And I don't want to experience anything more. Right. Right. I, I wanted to, you, you provoke the thought and it was, you know, not letting go of that pain, but it's also not letting go of that passion or that commitment that I remember on my mission in Detroit, I was feeling this level of hypocrisy. I don't know if I talked about it in the last one, but I remember, you know, my whole life being told about this burning of this bosom, the, this, the Moroni's promise, all of this was just so palpable to me. And mm-hmm. I knew that, that, that what I had in me was this something special that I could offer, that if I could only connect in the way that I knew God needed me to, mm. I could bring so many to the masses. But I just needed, I needed to have some sort of signal that he was there. And it was just so powerful. And I was on my knees and I was crying. And it was like that level of pure, genuine authenticity just was in every single part of me, what I would have called my soul. But now I just know that 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 was that part of me that can truly project all of me into something bigger than myself. Right. But it took me getting through that hollow conduit that didn't have any validation on the other end. It was like, so that came the grief. But years later, you know, it's been like 17 years now, I can still feel that resonance and know within me, I can feel as if I am connecting with something so genuinely authentic to something greater than myself. Right. And then I put that in other things. I take that feeling. It gave me that, that, that deep imprint. And I take that into trying to connect to somebody else or trying to connect to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I remember being so profoundly changed. I talk about this book all the time in the podcast, but by Robert A. Johnson um, called Inner Gold, where he, I was, it was funny because in my life I was having a really hard time fully understanding what psychological projection was Mm -hmm. because I was getting stuck with this thing of like, okay, so there's this person in my life who you know, let's say is lazy and annoying. And I keep finding this issue over and over again. It keeps bothering me. Like this Mm -hmm. person is just, let's say, complaining about their life, but not taking any action to fix it. Just constantly, constantly. And, you know, trying to reflect on, okay, you know, is that, are you so harped on that one idea and that one thing about them that's bothering you so much because you really dislike that part within yourself, you know, or or whatever the example was. And, what what kept tripping me up was thinking like maybe that's true but they're also lazy and not getting their shit yeah, together right yeah so to to be able to hold these two two truths at the same time yeah. which was like okay one maybe yes what i dislike most about this person is what i dislike most about myself which doesn't mean they're not that thing right you're finding people yeah. who you can project whatever you wanted it whatever you want to project onto them you're finding these kinds of stand-ins right yeah, yeah. um so it is true it's not that you're making it up you know let's say you think someone's like i don't know just uh super unfeeling and obnoxious. It doesn't mean they're not unfeeling and obnoxious, but you're not dealing with that thing within yourself by finding someone to have it. Right. And this book inner gold, 
I read trying to wrap my head around psychological projection. And what's interesting is that this whole book is not focused on negative projections like that, but positive projections. So he calls inner gold is basically your inner God, right? Mm. And so these things that we value within ourselves, this sort of godlike in, you know, quote unquote enlightened. And I'm, I'm talking about in a positive way, not a sort of like toxic, unhealthy way, but how we're, how we have something to give to the world and where we see ourselves and what type of, you know, leaders maybe we, we want to be. And we're not capable of owning that within ourselves. We're not capable of walking with that within ourselves. So we find these gods and these gurus and these presidents or whatever it is to project that onto. Um, There's a great, uh, what's her name? Marion Williamson, I think like we're not afraid of um, how we're not good enough, but we're afraid of, you know, uh, how great we could be. Yeah. Something like to that extent. Um, And I think that's extremely true. I think we're, you know, we're afraid because it's, it's also risky. You know, it's also scary to take up leadership positions to really to to embrace the fact that we might fail and upset someone by being who we want to be. So instead of embodying that, we find these sort of external people ideas to project that onto. I Um, think that's from like take Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. This is that's exile. Yeah. Right. So you break away and then you're excommunicated. You're you're sent into the forest. You know, you're, you're yeah. now, you're, you're completely cut off from everything that you knew. That's the worst fear that you can be. And if right. you're just comfortable, if you're just part of the community as the community wants you to be a part of, there's no movers and shakers in that. Right. There's, there's just the potential for like dark triad personalities or these people that have embraced their inner God, this, this inner gold that you say and attracted the right people. Like I go back to Joe Rogan, like look at the people he's attracted and look at the good that he's done to the world. Like his ability to have the conversations with so many different people and bring up topics that our world was, I mean, 10 years ago would never have been able to have these type of conversations and make them so, not just accessible, but also acceptable in our culture. Yeah. Well, and it's interestingly cyclical and also very dangerous because I think what's interesting about this book that he talks about, I guess he's speaking about, you know, just us as a species where we're at in our own sort of psychological understanding and development, Mm -hmm. that we're in this really interesting time in history when I think we had uh, prior to this, Um, we had much more respect for authority. It was just like, Oh, the Pope says X, Y, Z, that's it. You know, these, these people, these leaders, these, whoever they are, you know, I don't have to really think about this. They've just handled it where I'm good. He talks about this, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you have to read this book. It's like 75 pages of just like, Oh, wow. And so, and he says basically that we're at this point in time now where, where we have less respect for authority, where we're thinking more individually, we're thinking yeah. about our own, you know, individuation and who we're who we're supposed to be in the world and what we're going to offer and and what our thoughts are. But the problem with that is that that's so new and so unsupported and so, you know, not we're not held accountable by the culture in any sort of a way. So what can happen is like, okay, well, I'm not going to say that there's this God or this all knowing person or being that I'm just going to follow, you know, 
what about me that might exhibit some of those qualities, which again, a certain level of that is super beneficial. Mm -hmm. But I think if you go, if you swing that too far, then you have these dark, these, right. You have the Trumps, you have the gurus who are like, I am God, you know, now listen to me. It's like this bizarre. Think of the the rising tide lift all right. Right. And so in your awareness, in your emotional state, if you let that, you know, rise with everything, but no, if you funnel that and you channel that just into that one feeling, yeah, that absolutely can be dangerous. Yeah. Uh, footnote for you. And you said that's a 75 page book. Okay. Julian Jaynes. Have you heard of him? No. Okay. So he's a psychologist. Uh, he wrote the book, the breakdown of the bicameral mind Mm. and interesting tidbit, uh, the Westworld series was based. So how they use artificial intelligence is based on the Julian Jaynes bicameral mind thesis. And I'm going to, try to not bastardize it, but (laughs) because it literally is, this is a tome of a work that he created. And the, like my limited understanding of reading it twice, but it's still very hard to conceptualize. And I'm excited for a 75 page, which seems to be saying the same (laughs) thing is that our, the way that we experience consciousness is different than people like 2,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. When they heard that monologue, that internal voice, they didn't hear it as their own. They heard it as the logos from above. Right. And, it, and, and so this is how, like in the Iliad, in Homer, you know, the, uh, they don't have inner reflection. There's no inner monologue that compelled them. It was all the, 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 the gods moved through them mm-hmm. and they were, they were literally puppets for the actions that were commanded from something external to themselves. Right. But then he talks about how like the Silk Road opens up and then these little tribes started mingling with others, the, the, the people that would go along and they'd start trading. They became traitors because they'd noticed that this other tribe, they were talking to their chieftain. Like this whole thing was like, wait a minute, that's not what I, you know, they literally just go into a different like uh, linguistic set or logos that was yeah. localized in that little part of the world conflicted with this part of the world. And then that broke down that bicameral mind and pulled the locos from the cloud into the person and in the person, then it's like, Holy shit, what do I have? And that's where Jung puts out all the Jungian archetypes. And it's like, look, you have, you know, the Greeks did it with all of these gods and you know, they like everybody's trying to map what is internal, but like, uh, what was his name? Um, Alfred, no, Kajipski, mm. you know, the map is not the territory. Yeah. Territory, right? And so, yeah. Does that make sense with yeah. the bicameral mind? Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, I think All it's right. a very... That's such a hard one to... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, no, I think it is very similar. And I, I you know, it's, it's, it's challenging because I feel like it requires this, if let's say we accept the framework that we're in this like weird middle ground kind of a place... You know, I do think, I don't know if it's Western, I don't know if it's humans at this time, I don't know what it is, but I think, you know, we're we're often uncomfortable with standing on any sort of shaky ground, right? Mm. Like we want answers, we want to know, we want control, we want, we want to understand what's going to happen, we want to understand what's already happened. Um, and I feel like this place that we're at, I mean, in so many different ways, obviously, you could like broaden this concept to so many things that we're experiencing now in the world, but sort of psychologically in this way, 
like what does that look like and feel like to bridge the 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 gap or to be standing literally on the bridge between you know nothing is internal versus everything is internal yeah. like that's a very interesting place to to be earlier when you talked about holding two opposing ideas right you know uh, cognitive scientists would call that cognitive dissonance right right and i had this visual when you said that of surfing cognitive dissonance and that's what seems you do really well that all the people that we tend to gravitate really well is they can hold opposing ideas and surf between them without tumbling off into like, ah, shit, now we're, we're fighting now. That's not what the point of this was. I didn't mean to offend you. I I, I meant to try to see how you're managing these conflicting ideas or concepts or beliefs or, you know, scaffolding that has led us into all sitting on the Titanic as, (laughs) you know, (laughs) life seems to be headed to the depths. And it's frustrating too, because I think, you know, here we are sitting here talking about like, you know, projecting things onto other people or leadership, or even this gets into ideas about power, right? Like these things are not in and of themselves bad. You know, I had to go through this weird process with myself where I feel like, you know, when I was younger, I always just sort of fell into leadership types of positions, Mm -hmm. put me in a room with a bunch of girls and I'm like directing all of them or like, Oh, there's a project. Like nobody's organized. Let me sit down. Like I'm going to organize all of this. And that was precognitive. I wasn't like, I'm going to try to be a leader or anything like that. It's just what my own life and, you know, patterning, uh, led me to do. And that felt very comfortable and that felt fine. And then at a certain point, I think one, I was kind of shamed a little bit for that and told like Mm -hmm. that desire, the proclivity toward that type of personality was narcissistic, was, you know, egoic, like, oh, it's all focused on you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I did this thing, which I always do and which I think we all always do where we overcorrect. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to be in the spotlight. I'm going to totally be a wallflower and take a back seat. Like, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to think any, I don't want anyone to think I'm craving the spotlight. Um, And I had to really then sort of circle back around a little bit and be like, if that's my thing, if like leadership, like we need those to some extent, we need people to be like, shut up, get your shit together, Uh you know, Um, and have people, you know, have a person be the one that organizes a group, organizes a plan, you know, manages the team. Um, It's just that we all have to be, whether it's you're a leader, you're the brains, you're, you know, you're the builder, whatever the thing is, you have to be really conscious around how you're using. It's like the great power with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, I talk about that all the time. Um, but it does require a great deal of self-reflection. You know, I always say like, I'm not surprised why I was asleep for so long or why so many of us are because it was a lot easier in many Mm -hmm. ways than to have to constantly think about like, where does this feeling come from? Where does this thought come from? Yeah. It's, it's incredibly overwhelming and frustrating. (laughs) And the example I gave on the boat, uh, floating that river, we were talking about, uh, imprinting and raising, raising kids And what really brought me to definitely the core was when I reflexively would react to my daughter. Mm. And there was a time where 
it was appropriate for some sort of discipline or some sort of like interaction with her to be like, all right, this isn't cool. But whatever I did, which was gave her some face, because I don't yell or anything, but the face I gave her, she then mirrored. She she looked at me and made me feel exactly how I felt when my dad looked at me like that. Mm. It was this reflection of me when I was a kid. And I just gave her that look. The difference was I don't think my dad, when I gave him that look, affected him. Like it didn't give him that emotional like, you know, and that goes into like his issues and with his, he didn't have a father and all that. So I'm not putting that on him. I'm putting it on me that I was the boy who felt so deeply when my dad looked at me like that, that it, it literally like crippled my emotional capacity to navigate the world. That look he gave me. And whatever I did to my little girl, she looked at me with that look and it like instantly, like I know more, like, I can't, I'm I'm asking Tori, like, what do, look at my face. How is my face not representing what is internally being felt? Because there is a total disconnect. I'll get lost in thought and, or I'm feeling something that is not understood manifestly, but it's understood physically. And my body is representing that. Right. Yeah. And the, that's such a good point too, because I think it's weird. It's like on the one hand, there's so many more people in the world. There's so many more avenues through which to gain information, to share information. There's people everywhere. And yet I feel like the reason a lot of this become continues to be perpetuated is because we're no longer living in this tribal environment in Mm -hmm. which people are holding us accountable. Um, you know, it's like, I think about the me too movement, for example, and there, there are people that are accused of things without due process. You know, if you, let's say you're living in a group of a hundred people and you did a thing, like if someone accused you of that thing, if someone came to the group and said, Hey, this person did this thing, you know, it's up to that group to decide like, okay, who's the accuser? Who's being accused? Yeah. What's yeah. the action? You know, is that a valid thing to shame someone for or to hold someone accountable to? Is this whole thing ridiculous? But I feel like we don't live in a world where we're forced to interact with people like that anymore. No. You know, so it's like people can, you know, people just go to a therapist to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to therapy. But the second that therapist said some says something to them that they, they don't like, therapists. they go to a different therapist, uh-huh. right? They don't like them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in this all the time, like people are just moving. That's where I think, you know, if you're a per- if you're a person that is consistently being magnetized toward narcissists, it's because you're providing that food. Oh that's yeah. That's not a. That's not an accident. That's the best way to put that. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's something that people that have been deeply imprinted by dark triad personalities, that's how they get their validation. Right. They don't know how, like, that's that's how they they navigated in the world. That's how they were anchored in the world. Right. That's how I was anchored in the world, was imprinted right. by narcissism. Right. And that is, once you step away from that... There, it's like you have no GPS anymore. You have no, and, and so you default back to that. Like that, well, you're making me feel, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and they can, whatever type of narcissist it is, can spin it to where you're getting that validation, but it's usually that negative reinforced validation that then it's a perpetual 
perpetual cycle of mm-hmm. losing yourself into somebody instead of having somebody that that amplifies the best sides of yourself because we all have the ability to mirror right yeah. uh, have you heard that the the looking glass self yes the, yeah, yeah so yeah. I am not who I think I am I am right. not who you think I am I right. am who I think you think I am yeah. right I know that sounds but when you actually have that understanding that you have a mental model of who I am and I am interpreting what that mental model is and the way that you reflect back to me, hopefully is in a genuine way that's pulling out the best sides of me, that you're validating that. And when you're with your partner, same type of thing. Hopefully you have a partner that validates and pulls out those best sides because we, we all live in these mental models of each other instead of the actual real representation of the other. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's also like, I just want to say how challenging it is when you are the type of person that is gaining your own self-identity or your self-worth within that like sort of fawning dynamic, right? With a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I realize like, why is it so hard for me? I mean, first of all, I'm getting sucked into these situations. So obviously there's something about me that's like craving this type of validation and, oh yeah, like, okay, so I'm going to admire you and put you on this pedestal and you get what you want. So you get what, so I get what I want, which is Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you're amazing. And like, thank you so much. And you're one of the good ones and whatever it is that you're saying. But to break away from that is, and I found this with every single person who has these narcissistic qualities, breaking away from that person is the most painful part of the whole thing. Because you're taking, again, you're literally taking the food off of their plate. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to do everything within, you know, being threatened that you're leaving, being threatened that you're going to abandon them. They're going to say all the things, you know, to a heightened degree that maybe they've been saying all along. But it was amazing to me that like every time this happened, every time I was like, okay, no more, the person flips yeah. out, you know, like you're a horrible, they just lay down all, it's they've the, got it, they got have it a stored. Clip, right? Yeah, they exactly. have a clip that yeah. is loaded with the highest caliber ammo yes. because you are vulnerable with that person right. and you, the more transparent you are with, with somebody on the dark triad loads their clip for them. And if you call them out on being a narcissist, you call them out on being egoic, you call them out on anything and they will use that ammo and they will yeah. fucking fire you with, with a whole barrage if needed. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking when you were saying that, I just watched that Epstein documentary. I couldn't. I, yeah. I, 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 I also had like, like a, I had to like, like heal myself. It afterward. made it real. Like it I, I read our conspiracy. I was so deep yeah. into all of that stuff. But as soon as like it had the interviews with these actual people, I went, Oh, this isn't, this isn't cool. This isn't, yeah. this is real. There's real monsters out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, I, I watched that and I, of course it's like this man is a monster. He's extremely fucked up. He's harming these people. He's, you know, totally manipulative or like whatever, all the words you want to say. Um, but of course, I guess because I'm the type of person that's been not to that extent, but sucked into orbits of people like that, it was, it was really fascinating to hear from the women. Right. And like, you know, there was one, and of course I'm just going to be called like a rape apologist and victim blamer, but whatever, I don't care. You know, there was one woman who was being interviewed who was 22 and some, you know, one of the women who was recruiting girls for Epstein met her at some 
club or something. And they got to talking and this woman talked about how she wanted to become a massage therapist or whatever it was that she was studying. And, you know, Epstein's recruiter was like, oh, well, I have, I know this guy and da, 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 and sort of talked him up and he's all, he's got all these connections and, you know, he'll pay for your college and, you know, help train you and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, wow, that's amazing. So they meet her. She meets with Epstein and yeah, he's saying all these things. And hey, why don't you come with me on my private jet to the private island, right? Okay, great. This is amazing. Like, all my dreams are coming true. This is great. And then the only, the first time that she started to question it was, I guess she was on the plane and Epstein was openly having sex with some other girl. You know, I don't know how old that girl was, Mm -hmm. but openly having sex with the girl on the plane. And this woman was like, it was then that I started to realize like maybe something was off. And I had to pause it. Like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, I understand how she got to that point because I've been in places like that too, where I was so fucking naive Mm -hmm. and just totally oblivious. But in what world would you not have a second thought when like you meet some random chick at a club who says that there's this rich guy who's going to pay all your bills and fly you, you know, there's no healthy amount of skepticism or questioning about that. That's the thing because it was being said in that confident conclusion that confident and what is what does society do what does hollywood do what is right. you know prince charming is going to come in yeah. and save. i mean we were giving those narratives especially to women that there's going to be these opportunities i'm special there is something that's special about me and it's exploited that's how the monsters totally. get in but the monsters wouldn't give in if we had a healthy culture yeah. that gave people that skepticism that ability to know that there's people out there like that. Like right. I will raise my daughter to have a full toolbox for knowing that there's personalities out there that are dangerous, yeah. but there's also ones that are just incredible that are probably the best people on earth, but they're just too shy. But the way that she looks at them, the way that she validates them, she, she'll meet somebody and bring out their best sides. Like that's, that's our ability, yeah. but these monsters lurk and Hollywood amplifies them governments protect them cia uses them you know like that's that's literally what the world that we live in is that from all information we have it looks like epstein not to get conspiracy epstein was intelligence you know he was being used and funneled and they let him have his his kink whatever you want to call it his what made him a monster was supported by governments. Right, right. And I think it just, it really, to me, drives the point home, though, that, like, we can't sit here identifying as victims and trying to get the world in that way to change, right? Like, that is a waste, a total waste of time. And I think this this is where it really frustrates me when people, like, call me names for calling into question those who participate in those dynamics. I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying you are given any tools to know how to navigate this, but once you, once you have the, the wherewithal and the insight and the Mm self-reflective ability to understand how you got here in the first place and what these people look like and sound like the onus is on you. The onus is on you to be empowered to, to not participate. I mean, you know, not just not participate, but then guide others of that course, have exactly. those blinders. Right. And, and totally. I don't know these women on that. And it gets into, you know, crazy amount of like trauma that they must experience or whatever. Right. I've never been around a monster like that that's right. affected me in that way. Right. But they also have that opportunity to completely lay out the way in which they were 
brought into the monster's lair, literally, right. and they survived it. And so mm-hmm. they can inform where we don't see governments doing it. We don't see schools doing it. We definitely don't see parents or religions doing it. Right. You know, yeah, the Catholics are going to teach us how to like keep our kids safe, right? Like, no, yeah. that's not going to happen. Right. You know, it's like, where is the safe haven for it? It's in yeah. the people that have survived. Yeah. Yeah, there's this interesting, I'll have to, I should probably post this video if I can find it in the description to this episode. I'm going to, I have totally no idea what it was called or exactly uh, how it was framed. It was some YouTube video that was talking about these types of, it was actually what I thought about when you first mentioned abstractions, that there are these, I feel like in many situations and relationships of any sort, that there are two different transactions taking place. There's what you, what you're both admitting to is happening on the surface, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm giving you this in exchange for that. But there's this other under the underground transaction that's occurring, which is often very emotional, which is often like, you're making me feel special. You're making Mm -hmm. me feel loved. You're giving me the admiration or even the self doubt that I need because that's what I'm familiar with. Right. And I think we are so afraid and so incapable of not only seeing what the underground transaction is, but then like, you know, not shaming ourselves from trying to get that thing. Um, because if we can come to terms with the fact that like, okay, I'm part, I'm participating here with this guru because he's making me feel special and loved and I'm making him feel special and loved and, those things aren't in and of themselves problematic, right? The The problem is when you're not honest about what's happening yeah, under the yeah, surface. Yeah. And so it's like, if we can be like, yeah, no, I totally understand why I want like love and admiration. I understand where that comes from in, you know, as far as my history goes, but how do I get that in a healthy way? How do yeah. I get that with someone else who's also conscious about that? And we can, we don't have to pretend we're playing a game when mm-hmm. really there's something else going on. And I think, you know, that's what often happens that these people, it's like with Epstein, like the, the above ground game was, you know, I'm going to help you become a masseuse. I'm going to mm-hmm. help you become a massage therapist. And I'm picking you because you're, you know, you need this, like you're desperate, you don't have any resources. But what's happening underneath that is the person without resources and who's desperate is using that person for his money. And the guy with the money is using that woman for her body, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the underground transaction that's occurring. But all that's being talked about is this kind of just like framework around it, you know? And then uh, to get to the point where you're going to be called a rape apologist and all that, anybody who is accusing someone and using language like that and ascribing that to you is not doing the work needed for our culture to move forward past these things. Right. I mean, that is just, how is that helpful? Right. They're not here. They're hearing what they want to hear and not the reality of the situation. Right. Yeah. And I do think like, you know, how does that, and it sucks because it's like, I, I've been hurt by people, you know, I, I understand the rage. I understand the anger, but we can't just sit there, you know, and point fingers at people yeah. because there is no, that in and of itself, the feeling that we're going to like change someone or save someone or make them see the light or like that 
is as much the the problem um as anything else like no you're not like you need to that's the whole podcast fix your fix yourself to fix the world you know like don't go out trying to save the world like fix what you're doing internally and i think that's inherently going to be beneficial to you to the people around you and to the people who are going to come after you yeah Um, if you if you take that i think that that's what would that's what would amplify machiavellianism is to hold at the top of your priority list to save the world. Cause if you only focus on the external problems, you never see your internal problems. And you see that with so many people, the blinders people have on the environmentalist movement, or you can see these blinders. Then these people are like, okay, I see that that's all you're looking at, but that's not the reality when you look at the micro and macro of where we've got ourselves. Right. That can't be the only solution. Right. And and also at the same time, you know, holding yourself accountable enough to recognize, you know, because you can go in the other direction too. Like, all I need to worry about is myself. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm just going to like be this spiritual being and like love is the answer. And like, <laughs> yeah. you know, on, on either side of that, whether we're hyper-focused on ourselves or hyper-focused on the external and don't see the interplay between those two things, like that's where we have an issue, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Good talk. Good talk. <laughs> we could go on and on. Definitely. But I feel like... Part three, a year from now? Yes. <laughs> Sounds good. Seriously. No, it's it's cool. I, I like, you know, I, I always talk about like how intuitive this podcast is yeah. for myself, you know, just in like, and also super vulnerable that just like everyone's hearing my own. This is just what I'm legitimately interested in, right? Yeah. Like I'm talking about things that I'm thinking about in real time mm-hmm. and I'm feeling drawn to people that are thinking about the same things. Um, but it is fascinating to sort of see like the last, you know, five podcasts that I recorded, like all these people are thinking about all these different things in very kind of similar ways. Um, and I think that's, it's just interesting how, uh, these ideas crop up. I mean, obviously, okay. So we have Trump and, and that's making us think about stuff like this, but it's cool to see how we all have our own again, filter and framework for understanding these larger concepts and like, where are we going collectively, um, by all thinking about this in our own way and how is that influencing ourselves and other people? It's, it's, it's been quite fulfilling. Do you try last thing to go out on? Um, uh, this isn't in the hippie way, but in the practical sense of Mm. serendipity or funneling synchronicity. Yeah. I, as somebody who abhors, dogma, the more that I open myself up to uh, experiences like meeting you guys and right. continuing a friendship, it, there's a, there's a, there's a definite, what I would say something bigger than myself or bigger than my, un- my ability to understand that right. leads to synchronicity that leads to these yeah. critical conversations that we're, we have to have in our culture right now. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I fully experience that all the time. And I think the lesson that I've had to learn with it is like, you know, I, I, I didn't really quite think about synchronicity before, but when it first started happening to me and I was in this open source, super mm-hmm. vulnerable state, you know, I could see, and I talked about this on the last episode I posted with Leah, this sort of like the fork in the road of like, oh, okay, could I see these sort of like signs and symbols and gifts and ways that my life is just sort of clicking into place as Mm. 
just nice and cool and reassuring? Or am I going to take all that information and be like, well, therefore I'm special and I'm a God. And, and, you know, the fact that I see 17 all over the place, you know, am I going to go on Google and like research what the number one means and the number seven means and like when I saw it or, or can I just look at it like I'm on the right path? You know, like there's just, there's a sign here that's like continuing to push me forward. And that the best way, yeah, a sign. Right. You know, it it's doesn't not have, to have a, meaning. It's not that's an right. ashram. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's a sign. Right. And, and I think that's such an important distinction distinction of like, you know, we have these friends that we were hanging out with that are driving across the country and making this film about regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. which has now become, I think, a much broader documentary about sort of death and our how we see death and treat death within our culture. And they have had they're amazing people, super authentic, like very passionate about this, have totally risked basically everything mm-hmm. to do what they wanted to do and sacrifice friendships. They're in their, you know, mid to late twenties. And it's just, it's very clear to me, even on my end, that things are just like clicking into place with them. They need to meet this person. They find them, you know, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, Chris and I talk about it on our podcast. We find this other person. It's like, and it's exactly on their route and all right. And that's a beautiful thing that they've come to just be like, wow, that's so special and amazing that this keeps happening to us. And I recognize that and I'm appreciative of that. But what they're not doing is being like, and therefore, you know, we're the best. Yeah, and like, that. yeah, like we or have even I'm manifesting this. Oh, totally. you know, that When you get yeah. into the I manifest synchronicity, then it's like, well, no, synchronicity happens. It's, if you're it's, open to it. Yeah. If, you, if you move forward, right. and the more you move forward towards it, it's like a gravity well. It's right. the synchronicity funnel. But right. if you get into the whole, I manifest everything, then you get into like, really? So these starving kids around the world just aren't thinking of a stake hard enough? Yeah, exactly. You know, that's not, that can't be all it is. Right. Agreed. You have any other books to recommend to the audience? Books. <laughs> well, I've been deep in uh, uh, like very negative ones, but very poignant for our time. I would recommend Hate Inc. if you want to learn about how our media has been corrupted. Mm-hmm. It's by Matt Taibbi. That's a very, very good one. And then right after that, I read um, uh, Antisocial. And it's the hijacking of the American conversation. And that one Mm. also was really, really, if you want to have a fundamental understanding of the polarization of our political sphere, that is the one that really lays it out. But those are very negative, very like heavy, heavy lifting, lifting books. Yeah. And uh, can people find you anywhere if they want to reach out and talk to you about any of this stuff? Yeah, I'm usually on Facebook or Twitter, but yeah, you can find me. It's just Kevin Russell. Actually, Medium is where I do like some writing. Oh, cool. I put a couple out about our current trajectory or the iceberg that we hit. Awesome. Well, yeah. I will be sure to link to it. All right. Well, Thanks. thank you, Anya. Yeah, thank you. All this right. was fun. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, Again, if you'd like to support the show and meet people like you, head to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. You can participate in exclusive WhatsApp group chats, become a part of the book club, get access to playlists and t-shirts, all sorts of cool things. You can also always go into iTunes, hit subscribe, leave some stars and a review. This helps the podcast reach more people, which is the point in my opinion. Um, other than that, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing these episodes with your friends or with people that you think would find value in what I talk about. 
Uh, it's so lovely to see this community grow and I cannot wait to meet more of you in person because all of you who I've met in person thus far, y'all are pretty damn cool. This is like, I've said this before, but this is like secretly just my way of attracting friends because it's really hard to find like-minded people blindly. But, uh, when they find me through the podcast, it's like, they're just already gone through all the filters. Y'all are just already super amazing. Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song called uh, Motion Sickness by Phoebe Bridgers. I've actually been trying to figure out a way to play this uh, song on the podcast before, but I couldn't quite figure out how it fit in topically. And as you know, if you've been listening for a while, I really like playing topical songs that relate to the episode itself. Um, so again, as I mentioned in my intro, this is definitely about a relationship, not necessarily a, a cult or a commune, but hey, it totally applies. Um, I would assume a lot of you have experienced these types of feelings and have been in, in these types of relationships and you are not alone. And yes, it's hard to leave. And yes, it's embarrassing and shameful, but it's so much better to walk away. And uh, when you do, there is a whole community of people waiting for you who are much cooler and won't treat you like shit. So that sounds good, right? Um, enjoy the song, you guys. And I cannot wait to talk to you in a week and bring you more great conversations. Love to you all. Let it go.